Psalm number 68, there's also two key texts, if we can get to them, that we'll be looking at throughout the other parts of the Bible. One of them is Revelation chapter 5. If you've got one of your ribbons, just stuff a ribbon in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5. And the other one will be 1 Kings chapter 18. So there's two extra scripture readings this morning. The first one is Revelation chapter 5. And the second one is 1 Kings chapter 18. And I promise you, I won't have you thumbing through your Bible any more than that. That's going to be quite a lot anyway. Is everybody happy and glad to be in God's house this Lord's Day morning? Somebody say, Amen. 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 Well, here we go. During the month of September of the year 1589, the Protestant warrior king Henry of Navarre led his army to battle against the armies of the Catholic League, headed by the Duke of Mayenne. The Huguenot was vastly outnumbered by Catholic forces. Weather conditions and fog pro prohibited King Henry IV's artillery from affecting the enemy. The French soldiers' morale was very low. Around 10 a.m. in the morning, the Duke of Mayenne made his move. Henry fought valiantly alongside his men. The fog and the confusion of battle caused both officers and soldiers to lose their bearings, not being able to tell the difference between the two. In the midst of the confusing scene, the Huguenot king shouted, Courage, gentlemen! Pray, courage! Are there not 50 gentlemen willing to die with their king? As the confidence and courage of the French soldiers waned due to the immense numbers and the vigor which with their enemy fought, the king said, Come, lift the psalm. It is full time. Psalm 68 was the battle hymn of the French Huguenots. As the band of soldiers moved forward, strengthened by the cadence of this great psalm, the fog was lifted and King Henry IV's cannonballs rained down upon the enemy with the cannon fire matching the rhythm of this great psalm. Mayenne and his men were defeated and the Huguenot king held the field that day. Psalm 68 has been the battle hymn of a many an army. In our study this morning, we will examine the prologue of this great psalm. Let us come to know and praise the great warrior king who has come to vindicate his people and care for the weak and oppressed. Psalm 68 has been a great encouragement to many a soldier in battle. But let's take a look at this powerful passage and study how the original audience may have understood this great battle hymn. There are two simple points this morning. Roman numeral number one, introducing the divine warrior king. Introducing the divine warrior king. That's verses one through three. Roman numeral number two, is that he is also a compassionate warrior king. So introducing the divine warrior king in verses 1 through 3, 
but then also meet the compassionate warrior king in verses 4 through 6. Everybody ready? Say amen. There are at least six proper names of God in the Hebrew language, in the Hebrew Bible, in the 68th Psalm. I want to give you a sort of little bit of insider baseball about Psalm 68. And here's the insider baseball. This is one of the most notoriously difficult Psalms to interpret. Some of the grammar and some of the vocabulary of Psalm 68 are very, very ancient. And it has posed a great um, challenge for many of God's scholars, Bible teachers, so on and so forth. But what we're going to do is we're going to keep it simple. And uh, I've learned a principle over the years, and I think I mentioned this in our Sunday school class uh, I like to K-I-S-S, -S, not my wife, but keep it simple, stupid. And what that means is, is whenever I come to a very complex portion of God's word, I focus on what's clear. And here is what's clear. There are several things we're going to talk about what's clear about Psalm 68. The first thing is, is all of the proper names of God that are mentioned. You have six of them. Yahweh, Yah, Elohim, El, Adonai, and Shaddai. And so you have quite the mouthful of the proper names of God in the 68th Psalm. But it doesn't stop there. You have six proper names of God, but then you have at least seven titles for God. Let's look at them in the text of Scripture this morning. See if you can find them. How about in verse 4? The Scripture says, Him who rides on the clouds. This is, a, this is a proper title. It's not a proper name, but it's a title for God. The title for God in Psalm 4 is, Him who rides on the clouds. But then in Psalm 68 in verse 5, it says that He is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. Look at that. This is a title. This is a description of who God is in Psalm 68. Then notice Psalm 68 and verse 8. It calls him the one of Sinai, the God of Israel. And moving on, verse 19. The scripture calls him God our Savior. Moving forward to verse 20. It calls him the Sovereign Lord. Verse 24, David says, My God and King. And last but not least, verse 33 says, Him who rides across the highest heavens, the ancient heavens, who thunders with mighty voice. I wonder who Psalm 68 is all about. This psalm is about God. Now, I want to see who was paying attention in our study last week. Do you remember what I told you is when a psalmist, when a Hebrew poet begins and ends a thought with the same thing? Let's see if we can pick it up. 
The prologue to Psalm number 68 is found in verses 1 through 6. But then you also have an epilogue. And that epilogue is found in verses 32 through 35. And what is the unifying theme of, these pro, of this prologue and this epilogue? Well, I want to show you. It says very plainly in verse 4 in the prologue that God is the one who, quote, rides on the clouds. Do you see that? Psalm 68 and verse 4 in the NIV, it's he who rides on the clouds. In the ESV that I have, it says him who rides through the deserts. This is the same kind of idea. But then also notice verse 33 in the epilogue. Verse 33 of the 68th Psalm says that God is him who rides in the heavens. So you have a what? Remember our word last week? Inclusio. Here you have it. Ah, I just waited all week to say that. Did you know that? Anyway, this is an inclusion. And what the inclusion is doing at the beginning and the ending of this psalm is it's telling you what or rather who this psalm is all about. And this helps us. This immensely helps us in our interpretive accuracy. That is, how do you know what Psalm 68 is saying? Well, Psalm 68 has a prologue and an epilogue, and sandwiched in between is a description of who God is in the 68th Psalm. I want to quote Dr. Van Gimmeren. What is the theme of Psalm 68? He said, if there is one unifying theme, it is centered on Yahweh, the divine warrior, who comes to deliver his people in Mount Zion. Dr. Kirkpatrick says this, the theme of this magnificent psalm is the march of God to victory. It traces the establishment of his kingdom in the past. It looks forward to the defeat of all opposition in the future until all the kingdoms of the world own the God of Israel as their Lord and pay homage to him. Wow. This psalm begins and ends with descriptions of God as he who rides upon the clouds. And this is what we call the divine warrior motif. Doesn't that sound fancy? This is a theme. This is a teaching that is found throughout the entire Old Testament. The Hebrew people viewed Yahweh, their God, as a divine cosmic warrior king. I'm going to quote Dr. Van Gimmeren again for you. He said, The ancient people of God looked to him for all the benefits a king could provide. 
Other nations in the ancient Near East looked to a human king for protection and security. A human king had to be valiant in battle to secure victory over the enemies and grant peace to his people. But the Israelites looked to Yahweh as their mighty warrior king. They believed that he alone gives peace and protects his people. Yahweh is the royal protector of his people. Here's how it works. The Israelites were different from all the other nations that surrounded them. And they were vastly different because they envisioned with the eyes of faith that there was a divine and cosmic warrior king who stood in protection over the people of Israel every moment of every day. A real-life Voltron, if you will. Now, I'm dating myself. I was young enough to remember when they played Voltron on, uh, for cartoons on Saturday morning. Do you all remember Voltron, uh, don't you? I know that some of you all are old enough to remember that. But the Hebrew people had a real-life Voltron, the protector of Israel, the protector of all the universe, and they envisioned their God as a mighty, cosmic, divine warrior king who stands guard and offers protection over his people every moment of every day. Now, I want to ask the question, what does the divine, the, excuse me, the divine warrior king do for his people in the 68th Psalm? Well, I'm glad you asked because we're going to talk about that a little bit. I want you to notice the description of this divine warrior king found in verse number one. It said, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered and those who hate him shall flee before him. When the divine warrior king of Israel arises, his enemies are scattered. Before the presence of this cosmic warrior king, no enemy can stand before him. He is mighty, he is holy, he is impenetrable. You cannot do anything to hurt or harm this mighty warrior king. Consequently, notice verse number two. He said, as smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away as wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. The Bible says that the opponents and the enemies of God's people, Israel, and the enemies of this divine and cosmic warrior king, that they are like smoke blown away in the wind. They are like wax that melts before a great fire. These enemies and opponents are completely incapable of inflicting damage on the divine king. Now, I want you to notice these key phrases, smoke, wind, and fire. This is reminiscent of something, isn't it? I want to quote for you Exodus chapter 19 and verse 18. Listen closely. 
Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. This is what it's like when the mighty cosmic warrior king touches down on planet earth. Mountains shake, fire, thunder, lightning. This is a tremendous event. The highest beauty in all creation was when Yahweh's condescending and entering into historical existence. This comes as an expression first and foremost in the description of theophanies. What is that word? That's a big word. A theophany is a physical appearance of God. And specifically, a physical appearance of God in the Old Testament. A theophany is a physical appearance of God in the Old Testament. A Christophany is a physical appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And it doesn't matter because they are one and the same. Verse number three, I want to show you the presence of God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Did you notice that when God's manifest presence comes to the earth, when the divine and mighty cosmic warrior king of Israel, when he touches down, the people are not terrified. They're joyous. Why? Because their king has come. There's no terror for the people of God. But notice what he does. Verse number two, the wicked shall perish before God. This is a striking difference, isn't it? And this harkens back, this perishing, to the first psalm. The ungodly shall perish, is what the psalmist said. Now, all of this, this imagery that we have of God, God is coming, God is powerful, God is mighty, his enemies melt before him like smoke they are blown away in the wind. The mountain shakes, the earth trembles, there's lightning, there's thunderstorms. This is an event of the ages. The mighty warrior king has come. But notice in verses 4, 5, and 6 what that mighty king has come to do. It's quite shocking, at least I think. Because in this section, you have a description of the mighty warrior king. But now you find out that this divine warrior king is also a king of deep and powerful compassion. Let's read the verses. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides upon the clouds. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. 
Now this is what we call a paradox. In other words, you have a description of a mighty warrior king, but this mighty warrior king, he comes to vanquish his enemies and melt them as wax and scatter them as smoke in the wind, but he also comes to be a father to the fatherless and a provider to the widows. This is a mighty warrior, but he's also compassionate. He's also merciful. He's also loving. And the psalmist in the prologue of Psalm 68 gives as much space to describing the warrior king as being compassionate and loving and kind and gentle as he does to him being a mighty warrior vanquishing armies with his mere presence. This is reminiscent of something, isn't it? I want you to notice with me Revelation chapter number 5, verses 1 through 6. I'll read them quickly if you can follow along quickly. All the way at the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter number 5, verses 1 through 6. The Bible says... Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look upon or into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look onto it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. So did you see where the Bible refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah? The Bible describes Jesus as a mighty, roaring lion ready to shred and to rip apart his opponents in the blink of an eye. But I want you to now notice verse number 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all of the earth. Now, did you catch what the Bible just did? In two verses, in one passage, God describes Jesus Christ as being simultaneously a lion, but also a what? A lamb. Now, I want us to stop and consider this for a moment. When was the last time you ever witnessed a lion and a lamb living together in the same room. What always happens? Yeah, somebody's going to be lunch. And it's not going to be the lion. But here you have a paradoxical. That means that you have two truths that are seemingly contradictory. You have two truths that are seemingly contradictory, and yet they are alive and they are well. And it is that God is both a mighty warrior and a compassionate father. 
He is a mighty warrior who melts his enemies like wax before fire, but he is also a compassionate father to the fatherless. It means that he adopts. He is also a husband to the widow. That means that he cares for those who cannot care for themselves. And this is what makes our God so deep and profound and powerful and mind-boggling. It is the revelation of his character. Who else is like this God? He's a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. He's in his holy dwelling. He sets in order. He comforts lonely families, it says. He leads out prisoners with singing. The rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. You have all these descriptions of his character. And it's almost like the language fails to describe the profundity and the wonder and the majesty of who he really is. Think about it. He is a lion. That's terrifying enough. But then he is a lamb, a lamb which has been slain. Who is like our God? And then in verse 4, the covenant community, the Israelites, they're called upon to celebrate this mighty warrior in his acts of compassion and vindication. Notice the fourth verse. Sing to God. Sing to the mighty warrior king. Sing praises to his name. They are called upon specifically to sing praises to God's name. This is a shortened version. It's just Yah. It means Lord. And this calls to remembrance the promises and the revelation that God gave of himself in Exodus 3 and verse 16. Also Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. The idea here is that God is I am that I am. God says, I am self-existent, I am self-sufficient, and because God is self-existent and self-sufficient in and of himself, then what God wants to be is self-sufficient for his people. God wants his people to find their sufficiency in him and him alone. They are called upon to sing to their God who is their all-sufficient. By the ascription of him who rides on the clouds. I wonder what that means. Him who rides on the clouds of uh, Psalm 68 verse 4. Or in other versions, lift up the song to him who rides through the deserts. David contrasts Yah, the God of Israel, with Baal, the Canaanite God who was worshipped as the rider on the clouds. The Canaanites attributed rain, fertility, and prosperity to their god, Baal. What David does is David borrows a line, a title, that describes the ancient Canaanite god, Baal. And then David uses that description and that title to describe the one true God of Israel. I have written in my notes here an excursus on Elijah versus the false prophets of Baal. If you would quickly join me in turning to 1 Kings chapter number 18. 
And we'll read quickly, beginning in verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, for, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time, and they did it a second time. He said, Do it a third time, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down the altar, and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. What a story. And here you have in the 68th Psalm, David transposing the name of the God of Israel over the God Baal. And it's no longer the God Baal who is the rider on the clouds and the storm. 
It is now the Lord God of Israel. And we are left with this piercing question. And it is this. Do we truly believe that our God has all power over the idols of this present evil world which holds so many in bondage? When we proclaim the gospel and word of God, do we believe our God is able to reveal himself to be greater than whatever lost sinners are worshiping in the place of the one and true living Lord God of all heaven and of all earth? My question to you is this. Does your God fall from heaven with fire and consume the offering before you? Does your God this morning come as a mighty, divine, all-powerful, all-knowing warrior king who vanquishes all of your enemies with his mere presence? Does your God's fire fall and consume the offering and the wood? And does it lick up the water so that there's nothing left? Are you fully convinced this morning that your God is mighty and powerful to save? Because this is the Lord God of Elijah. This is who he is. He is riding on the clouds. He is a consuming fire. He is mighty. He is wonderful. He is majestic. But if you are on the wrong side of the battlefield, he is horrible. He is terrible. And he will come and vanquish you and mow you down. As the mighty warrior that he is. Pray to God. That when you meet the mighty cosmic warrior king on the battlefield. That you're not fighting for the wrong side. The covenant community, the Israelites sung praises to God because he watches over all the families of the earth with love and compassion. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers a land flowing with milk and honey. Deuteronomy 26 and verse 15. This is a warning to the powerful and the wealthy and the elites of the earth who seek to oppress and trample the poor and the destitute. The king is coming and he is arrayed in full battle regalia. And all who stand in opposition to him will be mowed down like dogs. Someone says, who stands in opposition to the divine and cosmic warrior king? Anyone who oppresses the people whether or not they belong to the people of God, 
The Lord's rule brings transformation from injustice to justice and from oppression to vindication. He changes sorrow to singing. He is the God of the weak. He is the God of the powerless. He is the God of the fatherless and of the widow and of the outcast. He is the God of the degenerate. And we are not to stand in judgment over people, lest we be judged by the divine warrior king. God is specific to Israel because they were a nation of slaves. Don't ever forget that the original people of God were slaves. And God says, I do not want you oppressing. I don't want you treating others like you were treated in Egypt. The goal of the Christian life, the goal of the Christian church is to show compassionate, loving care, mercy and pity on the less fortunate, on the powerless, on the sick, on the oppressed. We are not to stand in judgment. We are to minister mercy. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would come to know the mighty cosmic warrior king of all time and eternity. That we would come to know him as a valiant, mighty warrior but we would also come to know him as a compassionate father, a husband to the widow, adopting children as his own, the God of a nation of slaves who were oppressed and downtrodden. He vindicates the weak. He executes justice on those who oppress. And Lord, he will even execute justice on us if we oppress our fellow brother and sister. Oh God, may we come to know Jesus Christ as not only the lion of the tribe of Judah, but also as the lamb as it had been slain. A moment of reflection. Lord, help us to know you as the Bible presents you. Lord, not as we think you are, but as the word of God declares you to be, O oh Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen.